to pour out to the Lord the worship that he so richly deserves. Uh, this morning, as we looked at Haggai and we talked about priorities, uh, I was really trying to encourage you to look introspectively, to look inside and think about uh, where you're at. And this afternoon's lesson is designed to, I hope, challenge you to look at the world around you and look at some characteristics of the world around us and some of the challenges there. And I hope that when you leave today, you're not confused, uh, you're a little bit encouraged, a little bit challenged, but again, not confused. So if I, I apologize if I, if I misspeak. Again, this is going to be more topical. We're not going to be in the text as much, and we're going to be bouncing around with uh, some ideas and terms that you might not be familiar with. So please be patient with me. If you have any questions uh, after service, I'd be more than happy to answer those as well. I'm going to read from John 18 again in just a moment. As we prepare to, to look back at that passage once more, uh, let's remember the context there, the situation that Jesus found himself in. Uh, we are past the betrayal. Jesus has been arrested. He is in Roman custody now, and he's being interviewed. And this section of John includes a series of conversations between uh, Jesus and Pilate. And this is actually the second one that uh, I selected today. It's kind of my inspiration. Uh, so beginning at verse 33 once more. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? That's a question that I think we all wrestle with at some point or another. I think the fact that you're here, you've, you've got a pretty good idea of what truth is, but we'll touch on that more in a little while. Uh, the world around us, though, seems to struggle with this just like Pilate. As I tried to point out with Haggai this morning, these ancient texts are still relevant today because we're wrestling with the same ideas and same questions and same concerns that humankind has always wrestled with. These aren't new issues. Uh, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. So what is truth, Pilate asked. As I was reviewing this passage and, and looking at some different commentators and different uh, just opinions that various uh, trained and untrained writers had, had speculated at. Uh, I was surprised by how much variety there was in the opinion. Some people felt like maybe Pilate really wanted to know the truth here. I don't think so because that's when he ends the conversation. There's a what is truth and then he returns to, uh, to Jesus' accusers. Uh, is he confused? Maybe. Uh, some commentators have said that he's making a joke, that he, he's callously indifferent. Uh, I'm not sure that that's right either. The best reading in my estimation, and again, this is just according to Ray, is that he's a worldly, pragmatic man. He's there to govern uh, an unruly province on behalf of Rome, and he's very cynical. He, he has to uh, try to govern these people who don't really want to be governed. He has to keep his masters in Rome happy, and he probably just feels like absolute truth doesn't exist. And 
how would we imagine a kingdom that Jesus has described that's not of this world, that's founded on truth? What does that even look like? Pilate's living in a kingdom or an empire of Rome that is founded on authority and dominance and, and not truth, certainly far from it. And for him to be confronted with what Jesus is talking about was no doubt confusing uh, for him. So Pilate's situation, I think, is similar to the way we tend to look at truth today. And when I say we, I'm, I'm speaking culturally as uh, Americans and, and Westerners in general. Not particularly the church, because, I, again, I want us to look at the culture around us today. That's my desire and, and intent. Uh, the world around us tells that truth depends on the situation you're in. The world tells us that uh, truth depends on what you want or what you need in a given set of circumstances. Truth may also depend on how others are affected by the choices you make. Uh, we might use the word subjective or relative for the truth. Uh, you might also, if you're familiar with some philosophy, you might have heard the term postmodernism. This is that kind of idea that uh, truth is variable almost. Actually, truth is variable and certainty. That's postmodernism. There's, there's no absolute truth like we would proclaim or like Jesus was proclaiming here to Pilate. Let me give you a couple examples that kind of illustrate the idea that truth is relative. And bear with me. I, I promise I'm going to tie this all together uh, towards the end, again, hopefully without confusing many of you. So, for example, the grass is what color? Green, right? It is, except when it's not, right? It's kind of my yard on the right. Uh, but truth might change situation to situation. The sky is what? Except when it's not, right? It's not always blue. And we have to realize that a lot of times there's more than one right way to do something. Uh, I've learned that very acutely when I was uh, on my first tour in Iraq. If you look closely, you can see some naive optimism right there in those cheeks. Uh, that's me at the Ishtar Gate outside of Hilla, ancient Babylon, which is where the uh, Israelites have been carried off to. So another connection with this morning's lesson. But when we invaded Iraq, for those of you that remember and were politically involved, one of the kind of guiding principles of the dialogue was that we would get rid of Saddam, who was a terrible person, and then things would just sort of work out after that. We would, uh, hopefully, democracy would just spring up and a stable government would form, some kind of representative uh, system maybe. And that really didn't happen. Uh, on this mission in particular, we were working with the Iraqi Highway Patrol. One of our jobs was to try to train them to be better law enforcement officers so that they could better take care of their own country and we could get out of the way. And when we first started this mission, and I mean the, the people that were there before me in 2004, uh, they were trying to solve things in American ways. They were trying to set up a law enforcement agency that uh, was very American in the way it works. Even something as simple as scheduling a meeting. Uh, if, if we had a meeting scheduled, we've got our, our monthly uh, leadership meeting that we have at 7. And uh, gentlemen, what time do we start? Right about 7, right? And at 1.30, Louis was looking at the clock and looking at you all like, it's time for us to get going. And that is not their culture. Their culture is much more relational. It's about building a relationship with the person you're working with. And then through that trust and mutually beneficial arrangement, 
coming up with a plan that everyone will agree with. So for us, it confangled us to no end as we tried to be like, here, this is where you need to be when, and this is what you need to bring, and then we're going to do a patrol. And it just didn't work that way. So what we had to start doing uh, was allowing the Iraqis to come up with Iraqi solutions to Iraqi problems. We had to understand that the American way was a way that worked for us, but didn't always work for everybody else around the world. In this case, it kind of looks like subjective truth might sort of be true. Uh, you might have heard some sayings or seen some sayings like this. Uh, if you're a little fancy and you quote Shakespeare, you might say, to thine own self be true. Do what's right for you. Uh, you might also hear, to each their own. Or if you're some of these young people here, you might have heard, you do you. All of these mean kind of the same thing. How many of you all have heard or said at least one of these at some point in your life? Okay, so like everybody, right? So we as Americans tend to think in these terms that uh, we guide our own destiny, we define our own truth, and so on. Now, it's even further compounded by some of the freedoms that we enjoy in our society. Uh, we have a wonderful system of freedom of religion. It was enshrined in our First Amendment in the Constitution on our Bill of Rights. And there are good things about that. If you're thinking of Daniel 3 and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they were forced or the government attempted to force them to engage in uh, idol worship, and they resisted that, and they were then thrown in the fiery furnace, right? In their case, the Lord divinely intervened. They were saved. But for how many other Christians who refuse to engage in such things are, are they saved? You know, typically that ends very badly for the oppressed. So we don't want to go to that extreme either. But under our law, the, the challenge we have is all religious truth is equally valid, but also equally invalid. Your opinion is as good as mine, is as good as yours, is as good as yours, is as good as yours. And I think that's part of the reason we have such a problem with denominationalism in the Western world, so much division in the greater church community of people who profess to follow Christ but are not uh, unified. So this can be very discouraging for us. This can be very discouraging when you're trying to be evangelistic. Uh, this can tempt many people, and especially I think this is probably more of a, a challenge in some of the liberal denominations is to just throw up your hands and say, what is truth? You know, whatever, whatever you want to believe is fine. Now, the ultimate culmination of this line of thinking is, I think, best represented by this logo. How many of you have seen this on a car driving around? Pretty popular bumper sticker. You may see it. Keep your eyes open. Uh, it pops around. The idea behind this is that any ideology is as good as any other, and we should all just learn to get along. Now, while I would advocate being a good neighbor to your neighbors of other faith, uh, they're taking it a step further than that. This is implying that anything goes and anything is equally valid. So if you work your way across the letters with me, uh, what's that? In, in Islam, right? Symbol of Islam. Then we've got peace sign where that isn't a religion, but that's their ultimate goal. And peace is even more important than accurate faith. Uh, next, we've got the E modified uh, for gender. So freedom, or equality of gender equality, but also there's an implied freedom of sexual orientation there and that that's okay. And what do we got here? Yep, Judaism. Anybody know what that is? I had to look that one up. That's paganism. So pagan religions. 
Then we've got the yin-yang that represents what? It's from China. Taoism. Taoism. And then finally, the cross of Christ, just lumped in with those other six ideas on an equal plane. Now, for these people who have that kind of idea that subjective truth is fine, they look at religion as a value system just designed to encourage good behavior. You know, be Muslim if you want, as long as you're a good neighbor and you're kind. Be a Christian, that's fine, as long as you're a good neighbor and you're kind. And, or practice no faith at all, as long as you're a good neighbor and are kind. It's a, it's a utilitarian point of view. Your religion serves a function within this world, not one of uh, identifying and connecting to absolute truth and restoring that relationship with God. Now again, like all great lies, I think there's some truth to it. I illustrated that before with my personal example, but I think that we can look at an example from Paul in 1 Corinthians that sort of illustrates how this idea can be abused as well. If you look at 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22, I'm going to read there for a moment. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, this passage could be misconstrued. Uh, someone could argue that Paul is saying that uh, the message changes depending on who your audience is. How can we connect with them? How do we need to adjust the gospel to, uh, to reach this, this crowd of this audience? And that's, that's not what Paul's doing here, of course. Uh, Paul is showing us that we may need to adjust our delivery, but that does not change the gospel message. We may need to uh, start at a different point, depending on who we're talking to. When Paul's talking to the Jews, they had a good understanding of their own history in general. And so he could kind of fast forward to Jesus and how Jesus connected to that. For the Gentiles, those outside the law, uh, they probably didn't know anything about Judaism. He needed to go further back and change his message or adjust his message to that audience. So. This example could be used to try to illustrate that there is relative truth or subjective truth, but that is not what is happening here. So I want to say this point blank, and I put it verbatim on the slide. I typically don't do that. Though circumstances may change and different situations may call for different courses of action, and there is a great room, or there is room for a great deal of individual liberty, it does not change the fact that there is universal objective truth. I'm going to read that one more time. Though circumstances may change and different situations may call for different courses of action and there is room for a great deal of individual liberty, it does not change the fact that there is universal objective truth. Now, again, I think that in general you all know this. That's why you're here. I know this. And I'm telling you, the rest of the world actually knows this too, on some level. Even if everything they choose to say and do is founded on denying that and ignoring that, people feel it. It's still there. And I'm going to show you how I know, using examples from our culture that I've encountered in the last few weeks that really kind of inspired this whole sermon. 
All right, by a show of hands. And this is the part where, depending on how many people know what I'm talking about, I will go into more depth. Don't just raise your hand to get out of here faster. Okay. How many of you all know what a meme is? A meme. A few, like a handful, right? Okay, I find memes hugely fascinating. They are almost like hieroglyphs. It is an internet form of communication that's based on, man, I got way behind, uh, that's based on an image. Now, this image, it's, uh, if you Google it, it's called Fist Pump Baby. He looks really excited, right? He's, yeah, I did a good thing. So a meme takes an image, pairs it with the caption, or, and then it becomes a meme. So he's celebrating that he survived his first week back at work. There are so many of these you would not believe. This one's pretty simple uh, because you just have to evaluate the expression on the kid's face, read the caption, and it makes sense. But there are memes out there that incorporate different fictional characters from popular TV shows, and you have to know that that's the bad guy and that it's being presented ironically, and there's like four layers to interpreting these things. So I said it's like hieroglyphs. You can get online and be completely confused when you see this stuff. But again, I find it pretty fascinating. And again, I know this is, seems like a really weird lesson. We're talking about objective truth, and now we're talking about memes. Bear with me, I'm gonna tie it all together. All right, how many of you all know who this man is? Okay, quite a few hands. Now, without telling me what your opinion is, because I don't want to know, and that's not the point of this sermon, how many of you all have strong feelings about him? A strong opinion, one way or the other? Okay. You have a strong opinion about him? Okay. If you don't know, you probably don't, right? Okay, so this is Colin Kaepernick. He is a former quarterback, for those of you who don't know who he is. Uh, he's a former quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Um, in 2016... Uh, he had been reflecting on his heritage. He's of African descent, obviously. And he felt like he could not in good conscience stand for the national anthem. Uh, regardless of how you feel about that, that's not the main point of the conversation right now. But we just need to know who he is so that all this makes sense. So he decided he could no longer stand for the national anthem. So after some conversations with uh, some other people, particularly a uh, special forces veteran, he decided that he would take a knee respectfully and show his concerns about how the African-American community is treated, particularly related to law enforcement. So that's his cause. This really changed the national dialogue in 2016. He got a lot of attention, and he's been in the news since. You've probably seen some of his uh, supporters saying that it's his First Amendment right to express himself and to share his opinion. You've heard some of his critics saying that he's being disrespectful or he's being unprofessional and drawing football into, or excuse me, drawing politics into sports. Um, and it, it has cost him a lot. He's not been able to find a job in about two years now. And again, the debate continues. Was he really that great of a quarterback? And is he being blackballed or is he not a very good player? I am the wrong person to talk to about football. I hope we score all the home runs or whatever. It is not, it is not me to talk about his ability to play football. And again, that's not the main point of the conversation we're having right now. So last month, and this is what really started this whole thing, last month this ad came out. Uh, how many of you have seen this before? Okay, a lot of you. It worked, right? Nike wanted to get your attention and it seems that it got at least half the auditorium here. Uh, 
and the ad featured a lot of athletes. It wasn't just Mr. Kaepernick, uh, but he finalized the ad, and then he's been the print face of it. And again, as a, a person who is of national significance in our national dialogue, he's been getting a lot of attention. So if you can't read the quote there, Nike has written, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Just do it. And if they had chosen a different athlete, it might not have gotten as much attention because we would infer that they're just talking about sports and, and athletic achievement. But they, they purposefully chose him to make it a bigger issue than that, to propagate a philosophy that whatever you believe, if you assign value to it, it is worthwhile and it is something that you should do to the best of your ability. Now, Christians, of course, obviously saw that the philosophy behind this advertising campaign was unsound. If we look at Mark 8:36, this is a very famous quote. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We know that not everything you assign value to actually has value. We know not everything that we spend our time on is worthwhile or of merit. And so that that was really no surprise. I mean, there's preachers and bloggers had a field day uh, attacking the Nike ad. And I'm just talking about people who are engaging the philosophy of Nike. I'm not engaging in the, the conversation about the uh, race relations in the U.S. or First Amendment rights. That's not what I'm trying to tackle here. If you want to talk to me about that uh, in another context, I'd be more than happy to have that conversation. But I don't think that that's the point of what, uh, or that's not supportive of the point I'm trying to make today. Now, so what happened, and this is the part that surprised me, this is the part that uh, encouraged me, and this is the part that I hope you find encouraging as well. And that is that it wasn't just preachers and Christians who were criticizing the Nike ad. Uh, people started making a series of memes incorporating the Nike style. Here's a few examples. I hope you can see those. Uh, some of them are pretty funny if you, again, understand the layers of the meme. Uh, show of hands, who's this guy? Anybody know? Okay, very few of you. This is Thanos. He's the bad guy in the Marvel Universe, and he feels like he should destroy half of the universe to restore balance. So if your kids or grandkids are into Iron Man and Captain America, he's the bad guy they fight. And people recognize that Thanos' idea of killing half of the universe is not a good thing, even though he believes in it. Uh, what about this guy right here? Anybody? Uh, I knew Brittany would. <laughs> This is Anakin Skywalker. He goes on to become Darth Vader. So just because he believed that it was a good thing to do didn't make it right. And then, of course, there's a, a flat earth here for flat earth theorists that people found were fun, or people thought were funny. Now, the criticisms of these memes, or of this philosophy, and these memes uh, were not limited to simply the comical. Uh, there were a number of historic examples that were cited and circulated. Uh, you might recognize some of these as some of the more infamous men of the 20th century. Uh, Charles Manson on the top left, uh, responsible for the Manson family murders out in California in the 60s. Uh, Adolf Hitler in the middle, perhaps the most famous mass murderer uh, in human history, although there were many other rivals. If you start looking into depth and uh, some of the other dictator regimes that don't get as much attention in our studies. And then uh, Jones from the uh, Jonestown suicide. Uh, Jim Jones, I believe. Yeah. So the point of this is that people recognize unconscionable evil. People living in the world 
disconnected from the church, who haven't responded to the call of Christ, still recognize that there is unconscionable evil in this world. They recognize that there are things that are so wrong, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what you believe or what you think. It is still wrong. And when they do that, they are starting to touch on universal truth. They are starting to touch on God. They don't know it yet, but they're getting close. Closer than they realize. I hope I didn't lose you in all that. I know it was a very windy path that we've gone on so far. I've got two things I want you to take away from this. First, on your own, do not lose sight of the universal truth. Do not be fooled into the line of thinking that whatever you want to believe and whatever you want to practice is okay. There is truth, and we need to know that ourselves and then be ready to proclaim that to the world. And secondly, don't be so discouraged when you're looking at this secular world. There are people out there who need the truth. There are people out there who are craving the truth and feel like they're, they're making the memes. They're, they're making those memes because they know there's truth out there. They feel there's truth. They can't explain it. They can't articulate it. They would even tell you you're wrong for even thinking it. But they're receptive to it a little bit. There's the beginning of receptivity. You're not going to convert these people overnight. You're not going to convert them from one conversation. You may not be alive when they convert, but we can keep sowing seed. So the question that we started with and that we come back to here at the end, what is truth? What is truth? Well, the truth is really very simple. God created us. We sin. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He has died for his, our sins, and we can be part of his kingdom. And the final question I leave you with then is what will you do with the truth? You have an opportunity today, if you have lost sight of the truth, if you become disconnected from the truth, you can come forward in a moment, and we will pray for you, and you can have that relationship restored to your Father in heaven. If you've never accepted the truth, you can today. I talked about it earlier uh, during our first sermon. The baptistry is ready. You can be immersed into Christ, put on Him in baptism, be cleansed of your sins, and be part of that truth, that kingdom of truth that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is king of. But if you have any need at all, please come forward this afternoon as we stand and sing.